We are so delighted that you have decided to step in to this time with us. We are going to talk, as we have been doing, about missions. And we hope that you stay with us, that you make yourself comfortable as we journey together for the next 49 minutes. And we chat about how to get to those people who are in your immediate circle, those people that need to hear or have revealed uh, the reality of the gospel in their lives. So two things we pray that happen as we converse. One, that God puts in your mind's eye people for whom uh, this information would be beneficial. But secondly, probably more important, that God gives you a clear conception of what the gospel is. Because let's face it, we cannot take people to where we haven't gone. So we're going to have a conversation as we do every weekend. Before we do that, we're going to start with a word of prayer. God, we want to thank you so much for being the God that moves and breathes. And we want to thank you because there are some connections uh, that we can find with the culture, with the world, with the ideas and that we come in contact with. And perhaps the invitation today isn't to burn down the institutions that comprise uh, the frameworks of the mind and the ideologies that are prevalent. Perhaps the invitation is to find connections so that we can enter into a dialogue with a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel. Mm. So we want to pray that you give us sensitivity and that you give us that ability. We want to pray in your name. Amen. Friends, as always, I have my co-host here, uh, Joey O. Joey, welcome, welcome. Thank you. So glad, good to be here after a little time off. The children's program was amazing, but it's also back good to be back here discussing with you again. It's an amazing program, wasn't it? Yeah. I hope you all enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, we had just so much fun watching our kiddos yeah. sing. So. And your your son, Micah, he did a great job. He, uh, yes, he, <laughs> he, uh, he gets his acting chops from his mother um, and he just, he, he loved it. So uh, it's good. We've got another play. You're coming in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, the musical that is being put uh, by the media and Mike is very excited because they have been uh, practicing long and hard. He said, Dad, it's really going to ramp up because this week is Tech Week. And I didn't know what that was. <laughs> uh, oh, and God. apparently our media friends, Edwin, who's one of our producers, is also in the play. So he, he will be in front of the camera. Wow. And um, Tech Week apparently is when all the gear comes in. And so now it's, you're, you're doing rehearsals with gear and lights and mics and everything. So they've really, really been working hard. Uh, this is, it's gonna be fantastic, a fantastic musical, not because Micah's in it, but because it's all been produced by, uh, written, produced, scored uh, by people on our, on our team, which should just, it, it's amazing. Uh, one of our media crew members, another producer, Summer, uh, wrote some of the some of the scores uh, and some of the songs for the for the play our very talented colleague adriana composed some of the music for the play scotty ray another one of our media volunteers doing some amazing work scotty is a harvard trained actor and you know, that really really shows and then we've got people who like edwin who love being here so much that they they say not only do i work here i want to spend my time in church and so they're leaving every night around 10 p.m i know we were here i was here for a meeting late at night and they said, okay, we need to let the kids go at nine o'clock mm -hmm. 
but then the adults stayed longer to continue to rehearse. Yeah. I mean, really, really, truly amazing. Amazing, partially because Micah's in it, but also because of all the things oh, that you highlighted. So, so much. Oh, talent. my goodness. So, so if you talent. want to watch this, it's called Light of Love. Um, you can get tickets. They're still available on our website, luc.org. If you're in the area, please drop by. Um, I know my, my family, we invited our friends to one of the showings. There's several showings over the next couple of weeks. Um, and so we're very excited. Yeah, about we're, we're thrilled about it. We've got people coming from all over the state um, because it's, 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 it's a great play. Not only is it charming music, but it's funny and it's heartwarming. Uh, so louc.org, uh, click on events. You'll see it as uh, my colleague mentioned and get some tickets. There's several showings uh, and we'll see you there. Yeah, and the Christmas Candlelight concert is this, you know, tonight. Tonight. Yeah, tonight. and uh, if you haven't gotten your tickets yet, unfortunately, they they seem pretty much sold out. But it's always an amazing, amazing concert. And um, they do sometimes like to show it eventually later mm -hmm. on. Um, to, uh, as as our gift to the community, they, they'll broadcast it around Christmas time. Yes. So look, if you're not able to come in person, you haven't been able to get a ticket, look forward to that um, because it's our musicians always do a, an amazing job. Yeah, did you get family. your tickets? I did. Uh, I did very early. Because very I... early. They run out. Because <laughs> they, they run, run out. out. Yeah. Um, they run out and we were just debating and then Micah's like, you're not going to come see me sing. And I said, oh. <laughs> We are at that stage where my son's life is more exciting than yeah. mine. So. Uh, but yes, come. We'll see you tonight. To those of you who have tickets and are in the area, 4 o'clock, we'll see you tonight. Uh, the rest of you, as uh, Joey said, we always, always broadcast it later to kind of give the Christmas season an extra oomph. So to those of you uh, who will be viewing that later, we hope you enjoy it. So much stuff going around. Uh, we had the play last week. We've got this other play coming up. We've got Christmas Candlelight Concert. We're in the middle of our Advent series and we're seeing our wonderful families actually light the Advent candle. Mm. It is a busy time. Yeah, it's always a fun time too. It just feels... This is the season where it feels like Christmas, and we get a, we get reminded of the reason for the season, mm. which is the birth of Jesus, mm. the gift that God gave us of the incarnation, which is central to everything uh, about who we are and what we do. So, yeah, yeah. And in the midst of a season of ribbons and wrapping paper, we get a lesson that talks mm. about uh, how to reach out to the unreached. Mm -hmm. Didn't love the title of the lesson, um, but uh, and it doesn't seem mainly because it doesn't seem to coincide with everything that else that is going on. Yeah. Uh, at least at first reading, uh, I cannot uh, imagine anything less Christmassy than a philosophical a philosophical convention yeah. at the Oropagus, and yet that is where the lesson takes us this week. Yeah, and um, some interesting lessons that come out of this. Paul really operating outside of his usual way of operating, and um, it's it's. I, I'm gonna. Be, I'm looking forward to discussing this yeah. with you. So uh, Acts chapter 17, right? Mm -hmm. And as you said, there are some principles that appear. I love just the the mental image mm -hmm. uh, that that Luke starts to paint. And Luke, as we know, fantastic storyteller. Uh, tells us probably the best known story in Christmas. And yet here, mm -hmm. he is again at his storytelling uh, charm. Yeah. Um, you have Paul moving around Athens, surrounded by statues of yeah. idols, and he is distressed. And Luke uses the same word mm. that he uses to refer not to not to Paul, but to Saul, as he is distressed upon hearing the testimony of Stephen. And you have the mm. images, right? Those images kind of juxtaposed. This anger that he felt, and now this, this distress wow. that he feels among, as they move among the rocks. And the question is, what will what will Paul do? Will he chisel out a piece of marble or rock from those idols to throw them to some at someone and mm. to stone them? Or has Jesus done something different in his life? So just the way he, Luke has set up this story is masterful. Oh, that is so beautiful. Yeah. 
I love the contrast that you're, you 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 point out between this story and what has happened what happened before he started following Jesus and how how perhaps his reactions and responses to his distress even though the distress may have been a similar feeling um, his response is a little bit different this time around yeah yeah and the lesson I think <clears throat> does a, a great job at kind of cautioning uh, when we're, when we're feeling this distress that you're talking about. Mm. Uh, a cautioning against following the path of least resistance. Hmm. So Paul starts in the synagogue, then moves across uh, the aisle, as it were, the ideological aisle, and speaks to the God-fearing Gentiles, hmm. uh, the, those that are called in the scriptures the proselytes. But he doesn't end there. Hmm. Uh, for on Aeropagus, there's Epicureans and Stoics mm -hmm. arguing. And don't worry, we're going to unpack what that means in a bit. Um, and that's where he ends up. And so it's it's really interesting how Paul moves. Uh, you, you kind of see, again, a microcosm of the gospel as the, the Christ's command to make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, mm. uh, Samaria, and to the end of the world is kind of, uh, you have a snapshot here. The synagogue, God-fearing Gentiles, Stoics and Epicureans. Yeah, I love the progression that, that and that seems to be his regular pattern that mm -hmm. he follows, right? He always starts at the synagogues, and then he reaches the God-fearing Greeks, and then he reaches out to the larger community. But... What is also fascinating is the emotional distress that he experiences as he moves, mm -hmm. right? As he enters this world that becomes more and more foreign to his way of thinking and his way of approaching life, right? As he moves from the synagogue out into the marketplace, that distress increases because he looks at these idols and it's hard it's hard for me as a, you know, 21st century um, Christian, to really grasp the chow, the the utter distress that a Jew would have felt mm -hmm. walking among these idols and these temples built to other gods, right? Um, because idols hold very little meaning for for me now, and there are very few people in the United States who worship at least these kinds of stone statues as as idols, right? We can talk a little bit about idolatry a little bit more later, but these stone structures as idols, it it doesn't it doesn't bother me to think of oh these statues they're just interesting art pieces to me. Mm -hmm. Like I've I've visited Athens and I've walked through there and I took a picture of Nike right um, and it was just it was an interesting it was an interesting statue. I was like oh that's great art that they've they they've created, but for him as a Jew that was deeply disturbing. This was deeply disturbing. And I try to connect that. What would be as disturbing for me as a 21st century Christian? Where would I have to walk in order to experience the same kind of distress that Paul experienced mm. at that time? And I, 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 I mean, what would it be? Would it be like the red light district of a city? In, of a city? Like, what, what would it be that... that the, that the world would feel like it's so foreign and not just for, so foreign, but so anti everything that I believed in, right? What spaces would I have to trod to, to experience that? Because that seems to be what Paul is experiencing here. What I find fascinating isn't just the fact that he is trotting in unfamiliar spaces and in unfamiliar places. What I find fascinating is the spirit that, because there is, there's this kind of dueling emotions that the text brings up. There's distress and there's reason. Hmm. And if distress leads to rage, you have the stoning of Stephen. Hmm. If, this, if distress leads to a rational approach towards the, to the gospel, it leads to finding points of connection mm. in unfamiliar places and unfamiliar spaces. Mm. So with that in mind, think a little bit about what he finds at the Oropagus. Now, you are right, and I think we've all heard of, how, uh, of the debauchery and the excess of the Roman Empire. Mm. But to think that Rome was completely amoral 
is to miss the delicate conversations that are occurring as they do in any society. Yeah. Conversations on ethics and morality and what is right and what is proper. What I find interesting is that Paul links up with people with whom he has very little in common with, mm -hmm. except their conceptions of morality yeah. connect. So who are these Epicureans and Stoics? Well, Epicureans uh, saw themselves as a response to Neoplatonic thought. Yeah. You know, Plato, who uh, was a wonderful thinker that believed, uh, both Plato and Aristotle believed that there was one ultimate God, but that God could be reflected in many ways, and that the forms, not unlike what you said, were interesting art pieces, but in them, in of themselves, had absolutely no power. Hmm. Um, for both Plato and Aristotle, then, uh, the whole uh, purpose of life was to fit, to experience the right amount of both pleasure and pain mm. in the right amount of circumstances. So there were some circumstances th that required and demanded pain, and you needed to feel that. There were other circumstances that demanded pleasure, and you needed to be open to that. Mm. So by no, means, by no means hedonism. Epicureans come up and say, yes, that is true, but... One of the problems of Neoplatonic thought is with all of its talk about a god up there somewhere in the perfect realms of form, what we've created is a lot of people who are afraid of that god. Mm. So the real purpose of life is pleasure. Now, a lot of people that haven't actually delved into reading Epicurus say, well, these are hedonists that are just looking to please themselves. Mm. Epicureans believed in a disciplined life because they believed that excess led to pain and suffering. Yeah. And so it was all about living the disciplined life for life's sake, yeah. not because you were going to get uh, a reward at some point in the future or because you were going to placate some some God. It was live a life that is disciplined and ethical for disciplines uh, for life's sake and have pleasure. Very similar, I might add, to the advice that uh, the wise and uh, the sage writers of Israel give in the Old Testament, mm -hmm. right? Then come the Stoics. So the Stoics and the Epicureans are debating because the Stoics believed that you needed to have a God but that that God was, was wholly other. Again, very similar language to some of the language we use now in Christian mm -hmm. parlance, and that that wholly other God was devoid of any pathos, devoid of, devoid of any emotion. So the point and the purpose of life was to eliminate passion and pathos as much as you could in order to reflect God. And so the big debate that was occurring between the Stoics and the Epicureans is, uh, passion or no passion. Mm -hmm. And in comes Paul saying, guess what? God is both. <laughs> I love how you, you frame that because yes, there is a temptation to look at Epicureans and think that, oh, they are hedonists. All they wanted was pleasure. But their concept of pleasure is so fascinating. Like tranquility mm -hmm. was the ultimate pleasure. And when I think about pleasure, I don't think of tranquility. Mm -hmm. That's not one of the words that popped mm -hmm. into my mind. And yet for them, that was the ultimate mm -hmm. pleasure is having that sense of peace and tranquility and that sense of good and eliminating all of the disturbing fears mm -hmm. from our lives. So all of that, there, there are connections between both the Old Testament and New Testament messages and the Epicureans, and also like you talked about with the Stoics, this idea of discipline and duty. And, 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 and then I, I hadn't thought about it this way, but I loved how you brought Paul bringing both of these concepts and saying that it's both of these, bringing it together. And what's fascinating for me is his ability to do that, mm -hmm. his willingness to do that, right? Because as you pointed out, when he encountered something disturbing the last time with Stephen, his thing was to get rid of it, was just to break it down and to throw stones. And yet here, instead of throwing stones, he tries to find common ground 
with these two philosophies that were to a certain extent disturbing to him, but he was still willing to try to find that common ground, that common meeting point um, instead. Yeah, and look at how he does it, right? Uh, text says that he begins preaching the story of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And that would have immediately have perked and piqued the interest of both of these a group of people that are arguing on Oropagus. On the one hand, you would have had people saying, yeah, absolutely, there's a God. What, are you yeah. kidding me? Yes, there's a God, and there is a point to uh, to live uh, a ethic that is uh, that is stemming from deontology, from this rule-based approach. And then Paul would have said, yeah, but guess what? That God is human mm. and died. And immediately... The Stoics would have said, no, no, no. And he died to make you one. Mm. And to make this, this animosity that existed between humanity and divinity. God died in order to resolve that problem so that you wouldn't be afraid anymore. And so the Epicureans would have said, well, we can get on board with that. And so there's this really interesting capacity mm. that Paul has not only to begin by knowing, to begin by having a clear, concise uh, understanding of what he's trying to teach, but probably the, more, the most important part as he is invited to enter into this marketplace of ideas is that he understands the language um, and the ideological framework of his audience. Mm -hmm. And I think often when it comes to us entering and interacting with the world of ideas, uh, we don't understand the language and the ideological framework that our audience has. Yeah, that's such an important point because sometimes we feel like because we know the truth or know what is right or know what is real, that it is our place to walk into those spaces and just sort of lecture people and mm -hmm. let them know. And they either follow us or we don't. And yet what Paul is showing here is that for him, that first step happened even before he stepped into those spaces. He took time to understand their framework, their language, the ways that they communicate, the the, the struggles that they had and um, the things that they took pride in. He took time to understand them. And then he didn't use those things just as against them. He used them to find common ground mm -hmm. with them. But then he also led them to something more, mm -hmm. right? So, but it started with empathy and understanding and moving towards common ground and then moving on to something more after. And I think, and what does the question then is, and I know that this is a question that we often struggle with, what does empathy and understanding look like? Because mm -hmm. we all love to use this terminology. Mm -hmm. We are in a world that promotes political correctness while also uh, banning, eliminating, and canceling those with whom we disagree. And so we, we want to uh, raise up the banner of understanding and inclusivism and ecumenism, and yet we have very little bandwidth for people with whom we disagree. And so mm. the question becomes, well, what does this empathy and understanding look like? And Paul gives us, I think, the perfect case study in, mm. in this chapter. He starts by saying, people of Athens, I see that in, in every way you are very religious. Now, that seems like a turn of phrase that is that ought to be interesting, because as uh, as Luke begins writing this this chapter, he says Paul is distressed mm. by all the idols that he sees, and yet it is that same thing that is causing him distress. That now by by the time we get to chapter to verse 22, mm -hmm. he is commending the people of Athens for. <laughs> people of Athens, I came to your city. I was extremely distressed because you have all these idols or temples and temples. By the way, congratulations, because I see you're really religious. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that compliment is really interesting because like you said, it comes after the distress. It also comes after them, them sort of mocking him, mm -hmm. right? In verse 18, some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to mm -hmm. say? You know, so if they are these people are actively hostile mm -hmm. to Paul, and yet his response again is not to attack, is not to use violence or not to use force, but instead 
to seek to build common, common ground by, of all things, complementing their religion, mm-hmm. which I don't know. As a Jew, that must as a as a as a as a trained Jew, a Pharisee, that must have run so counter to the very core of 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 how he had grown up. And yet he is able to do that. He's able to do that here because he sees something, something greater than just drawing a line in the sand there. And he's able to do that because as he draws that line in the sand, he is being introspective. Mm. And I think that is the important part. And you you started hinting at that. Mm. Uh, we often say um, we have the truth. And what that really means, or possessing the truth, I should say, often, hopefully not in this particular uh, community, but often saying I have the truth is a perfect pretext for laziness. Mm. We say I have the truth, therefore there is nothing left for me to learn. Wow. And when we encounter a viewpoint that differs from us, that makes us uncomfortable, and so we dismiss it. It seems like what Paul is doing in chapter 17 is he is asking the question of, and he is experiencing the process of introspection. These idols are causing me distress. So I have an opportunity, and every bone in my pharisaically trained body is saying run. And yet in verse 22 and 23, he says, I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. Mm. What are these objects of worship? The same idols that are causing him distress, right? So yeah. he is he is saying, look, before I'm ready to speak to you, I've engaged in the process of introspection by which I stare into that thing that causes me distress or makes me angry uh, because my primary interest isn't uh, to have or to hoard the truth, it is to be understood. And that only happens through introspection. Yeah. And that understanding when it's genuine, not when it's just, um, I'm pretending to listen to you so that I have, so that you'll listen to me mm-hmm. when I talk, right? When it's actually genuine, when, when, you're, when we are seeking to truly understand where they're coming from and what their viewpoint are, that is so powerful. It's a powerful connecting mm-hmm. moment between people. I remember reading a book um, by Chris Voss. I'll never split the difference. He's a, a former FBI hostage negotiator. And he talks about the power of empathy in hostage negotiation. Mm-hmm. And I, I found that he, you know, he calls it tactical em- empathy. But his point is that that relationship between the person that you're negotiating with and you is so important that he actually, even though this is a person that has done a terrible thing, that in order to be able to converse and negotiate effectively, that he has to, he has to, in his own mind and in the other person's mind, see themselves as partners in the conversation rather than opponents. Mm. And it, what that means is that I have to really understand where you're coming from in order to partner with you. Mm-hmm. And he sees that as the first step to effective negotiation. And this is a this is as hostile as it gets, mm-hmm. right? Like they're they're holding hostages <laughs> that they are threatening to kill. You have to get every single one of them out. You can't. That's why he calls it never split the difference. You can't split the difference and say, okay, I'm only going to save five, but you can kill five, mm-hmm. right? He has to get them all out. And yet, even in that kind of adversarial relationship that, that's set up as an adversarial relationship, he sees the power of the connection of empathy in getting through this. Mm-hmm. And I, I found that so fascinating. And yet, when it comes to something where we are genuine partners, when we're talking to someone that we are trying to help them to, to experience something amazing that we've also experienced, right? Our intent is for their good. That sometimes, even in those kinds of contexts, we approach it as an adversarial relationship rather than a partnership. And what what Paul seems to be showing here is actually what's more effective is when we come alongside people Mm. as partners in this journey rather than opponents that I need to like beat down and convince you by shattering all of your arguments. We actually, it's it's more effective when we journey this road together. 
maybe in journeying this road with you, I learn and I grow as well. Absolutely. That's the hope, right? Because partner, true partnership in, implies that you have something to contribute to the conversation. It's interesting that Luke doesn't put Paul in the Parthenon. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you've been you've been to Athens. You know how close the Oropagus is to the Parthenon. They're basically now, if you go, it's the same exact complex, but they're not the same thing. The Parthenon is where uh, the crowd would would gather, and this isn't where Paul is talking. Hmm. Now, the crowd, the people that are that enjoy uh, the the uh, spectacles at the in the arena and the games. They believe that there's many gods. Hmm. The Stoics, the Neoplatonists, the Epicureans, they think that all that is hogwash. Hmm. The one thing that all these people can agree on isn't their ethics, but it is their idea that religion is a tool employed by the empire to control people. Hmm. And so notice how Paul then moves. He says... The God who made the world and the heavens, for, for all of them, it is this, this, this creator that lives in the perfect realm of form, does not live in temples built by hands. And immediately everybody says, absolutely, we can agree with that. Mm. Absolutely, we can, we can sign off on that. And he is not served by human hands. And so it is, it is really, really important that... As you're partnering, you have the correct understanding of what a partnership is. And a partnership mm. ultimately involves the exchange of information, of viewpoints, of ideas, and of resources in order for us both to grow. Uh, and when we do that, what is really fascinating is that these differences that we thought were unsurmountable begin to begin to crumble. And you realize that you have more in common with other people than what you might have thought at wow. first. Wow, that's so powerful. And you know, you may wonder like, how is Paul developing how do we see Paul developing and growing through this experience? Well, we see that in that there are Paul, the way that Paul approaches this conversation is so different than his other sermons mm -hmm. and his other messages, right? Like how, what you talk about, he is incorporating um, philosophy that they would understand into, the, into this conversation. So much so that there are some scholars who look at this and think, this isn't Paul. Like this, this isn't the way Paul normally talks. So much that they think, you know, maybe Luke, Luke is taking somebody else's sermon and ascribing it to Paul. But the reality, this is Paul going out of his comfort zone and also developing in how he communicates the gospel message of Christ because of his knowledge and his experience with these philosophers. And so there is a sense of Paul's even growth and change because of his interactions that, that he was able to understand maybe the gospel from a new perspective because of his, his interactions with these philosophies. The, the troubling thing, however, is, and you're absolutely right in the sense that you can pluck uh, chap, uh, verse 24 through 28 out of uh, the section and place it and pen, uh, and pen the composition and uh, offer credit to Aristotle, and people would not know the difference. Mm. Um, the connections that you have, for example, mm. between this and Nicomachean ethics. It's incredible. Mm. Um, but what you consider and what you, Joey, just defined as Paul's growth, other people at in, in the church in Jerusalem may call the watering down of the gospel. Mm. People in the synagogue that Paul has just left mm -hmm. may call this the watering down of Judaism. Yeah. And so I think that sometimes when it comes to uh, the rest of, of the people that you as, as a viewer have around, when you're asking the questions, how do I integrate? How do I integrate these ideas, this language, uh, these approaches that, that'll make me uh, connect in more meaningful ways with, with other people? 
sometimes we get we get very nervous about that and yeah. we immediately start saying, well, no, 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 you're watering down truth or you're watering down uh, the message or you're compromising. Another word that we that we love using is we're com- you're compromising. And so I think um, this particular section, as I as I read it and reread it and looked at it and kind of parsed it out, it gave me a lot of hope Hmm. because often um, when we have our credentials challenged as a faithful follower or as a member of this particular group because we're compromising or we're quote unquote watering down um, i see i see a lot of that same same effort uh done uh done here in paul paul is not watering down Mm -hmm. paul is trying to connect with yeah that's so powerful yeah so and, and then the inevitable question that arises is that how do you know if you are being unduly influenced by these interactions away from where God is leading you, <clears throat> or if you are actually learning and growing to, um, to understand God in a greater way? Like, how do you know which direction you're going, right? And... I think at the core, I'd love to hear what you you have to say too. Um, I think for me at the core of that is, what is it that's leading us to be, to be more like Jesus, right? To to see the world the way that Jesus does and to live in this world the way that Jesus does. What is it that's drawing us to do that? To, to love God more fully and love others more completely and if if that is that has now become more of my benchmark because it's the benchmark that Jesus identified right that it's the identifying mark of a christian to 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 that his disciples will be known by their love in John mm-hmm. chapter 13 that the greatest commandments are to love god with all our heart all our mind all our soul and to love our neighbor as ourselves So this aspect, especially as found in the book of um, John, but throughout the Gospels and the New Testament, is this idea that if we are growing more in love with God and growing more in love with the people around us, then then we know that we are at least heading in the right direction. We may not be at the right place yet, but we know that we are heading in the right direction so for me, that becomes sort of a benchmark to make sure that 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 I am not being led off track or mm. straight because I, I see that as being a fear. Like if I interact with people who believe things differently than I do and then I'm influenced by them, how do I know that I'm not being led astray mm-hmm. from God? Right? And how do you how do you incorporate? Uh, it's not just that you're meeting with people it's that you're actively incorporating their language language that they're comfortable with ideas that they're that they're comfortable with ideas actually that were theirs before they were yours um these these philosophers predate jesus yeah and so how do you know um if if you're not being influenced by them and i think i think the benchmark of love is is a great benchmark uh, but I also think that the heart is deceitful, mm. and we we have the capacity of justifying and convincing ourselves of a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to try to be as candid as possible, and I'm going to invite you to take a leap of faith. The mm. reality is you don't know. Mm. You don't know. But at some point, you have to trust that God is actually working in the world. Hmm. Um, God said he was. Some days you wake up and you look at the world around you hmm. and you say, I, how can it be possible to say that God is active and present in this world with all the stuff that is going on? And yet, at night when you go to bed, you pray to God and you say, thank you. Hmm. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your continued care. So we we are able to do this. Uh, the thing then is, what if what if God isn't just working 
on the world in an abstract way? What if God is working upon his creation in very concrete ways? Hmm. And um, what if uh, God isn't just working in the church? And we've said this before. Uh, what if what if God is working in the ideological frameworks uh, that are out there? We're, we get really good at pointing out the faults that uh, the Oropagus has. And to be sure, there are faults. There are, there are faults in Athens. Athens doesn't have it completely right. But I think we, we also need to recognize with that same vehemency that God is working in Athens because God is at work everywhere. And so at some point, I think, not only do you have to ask the introspective question of, do I, am I really doing this because I love people and, I, and I'm falling more in love with God? But at some point, you also have to say, do I trust that God is great enough to be working not just in Jerusalem, because there's problems in the church as well. Mm-hmm. It's not like the church had it all figured out. <laughs> no. Uh, and in the same way that in spite of the issues in the church, we believe that God is working in the church, could we say that in spite of all of the issues, and there's many to be sure, that are happening in Athens, God is at work there. Yeah, that God is at work, not just in Abraham, but in um, Melchizedek, right? Mm. Or God is at work, not just in uh in Moses and the Israelites, but also Jethro, mm-hmm. right? That there are people outside of the community that we identify with where God is still mm-hmm. at work, and perhaps we can learn from them as well. That's so powerful. I also think that um, this this idea of us, of the people of God or God himself co-opting the language of other people um, and using the language that they've already created mm-hmm is nothing new. I mean, Paul does that here, right? With the unknown God, he uses the language of philosophers here to describe God. Um, he He's not doing something new. God, God did that not just with language, but even practices where he takes circumcision, mm-hmm. something that other, other people's practice, and then he infused meaning into mm-hmm. it, right? Um, he, he takes baptism, which the larger Jewish um, um, nation practiced as well, not, not, specifically the way that John the Baptist does or or Jesus does but this idea of a purification ritual was something that 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 other people did as well and then he infuses new meaning into it he takes the passover and then infuses so all of these things god god seems to be comfortable with taking the language even language of a philosophy that he may not completely agree with and then co-opting it for his own usage and so I do think that sometimes in our day and age where words have become, we've had to become so precise with words, right? Um, Especially in our very politically correct world. Some of that can be very good because words can do damage and harm. But I don't think that if we are using those words in helpful ways, that they are things that we need to be afraid of. Because God has also used words of different different groups and different philosophies and used it to communicate his good news message mm. as well. And this is, I think, why um, we, we need to start engaging in more thoughtful conversations within the church on what is truth. This is asked, uh, Nicodemus asks this of Jesus in in John, what is true? And um, we've often, or traditionally, because we come from a Western mindset, we've said that truth is a set of beliefs that you possess and that then you can act upon. That is truth. Hmm. Um, Truth is an ideology that has been attested and proven and is is functional and useful. But I think that what Jesus points to in in the in the conversation he has in uh, in Nicodemus and what John is, and what uh, Paul is alluding to here 
is that truth maybe is less of a set of beliefs that you possess and more of an experience that you participate in. Hmm. And because truth is an experiencing, and I love uh, an experience you participate in with partners, uh, to use some of the language that you that you shared a, a minute ago, truth doesn't cease to be truth if somebody that we disagrees says it. Hmm. Truth is still truth because it's this experience that we are partnering in hmm. and participating in. Uh, so just because uh, somebody with whom we completely disagree on 99% of things says something true, then that is true regardless of if we agree with the rest of, of, of the ideology. We need to be mature enough to realize that agreeing with someone on something that is true does not mean that we carte blanche agree with everything that this person That's stands for. Yeah. Black lives matter. There, I said it. Black lives matter. That's true. Whether you agree with all of the other implications of that particular movement, then that's a decision that you have to make. Mm. But I think that the fact that something is true or that a statement is true and you can assent to that statement doesn't mean that now you need to agree with everything else. Paul says, hey, I see you're religious, love your statue of the unknown God, I adore the fact that you believe you guys are offsprings of God, uh, you've even said it, it's fantastic, he, he, God doesn't live in temples, agree with everything. Does that mean that Paul wholeheartedly endorses the whole of Stoic or Epicurean philosophy? No. Of course not. And so now, let's have the same certainty about the thing. I think we are so uncomfortable, and mm. I'm going to get off my, sop my soapbox in 10 seconds. <laughs> I think we are so uncomfortable with what you just said, which was, hey, um, you know, we, we language and do, do we dare appropriate this language? I think we're uncomfortable with that, not because we fear that we are going to be influenced by that language, but because we are unsure of what we believe ourselves. Mm. And when we are unsure of what we believe as truth ourselves, mm. of course, we are going to be unmoored by everything. Mm. But let's just for a moment recognize that truth is truth, regardless if it's Epicurean, uh, Stoic, or any other person with whom you disagree. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there. We. I, I love what you're saying here. We don't have to agree with everything to agree on some things, mm -hmm. right? And that there is, we almost have this fear that if we if we uh, if we assent to agreeing with one point mm -hmm. that we have to accept all of mm -hmm. it or that 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 means i'm letting them win that's as right. if it's mm -hmm. it's some kind of contest mm -hmm. and yet paul is showing here um very clearly that it's okay it's okay that this kind of reaching reaching people who come from a different perspective than we do actually reaching them means making a bridge of connection mm -hmm. and that starts with understanding and a willingness to understand in a way that that i open the door to my my own understanding being transformed by theirs right because some of what they say may be true just like some of what i say may be true like i'm opening that door to understand where they're coming from finding common ground that we can agree on and then moving on to sharing our our broader perspective right. and that is part of it. it we're not just saying that you stop with the common ground right. and then you end it there because i think that sometimes that is also the fear like oh we're just going to build common ground and then nobody's going to be no we we are supposed to challenge each other to help each other grow right as proverbs says iron sharpens iron there is this aspect of of growing but you can't start by immediately being abrasive. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, there's no, no connection. There has to be a meeting of the minds before any kind of growth and challenge and change can happen. So that, that challenge has to come, but that's not step one. That's later on in the process, as Paul demonstrates yeah. here. And that, that later on in the process might take a lot of listening, a lot of uh, experiencing life together, a lot of... Uh, creating and building trust 
uh, diffusing some of the anger so that we can say, yeah, we want to Black Lives Matter, and we also want to make America great again, to use uh, really, really loaded slogans that we that we are all uh, very familiar with. I, I think the last thing I, I, I would say mm. is that just because you do everything right, so suppose you follow this, this whole idea where you are able to uh, appropriate language and you're able to speak meaningfully into culture and you allow, you are grounded enough in your beliefs that you allow truth to be truth and not something that is, that is up for your possession. You might still do everything right and the results might not be what you're expecting. Yeah. And that's okay. I think, I think that's the, that probably is the most encouraging thing about this whole story, yeah. right? That at the end, there's like three people that say, okay, <laughs> we'll follow you, Paul. Um, so I think sometimes we, we think that there's something wrong with the system or with the approach if we're not getting the results uh, that, we, that we desired. And um, this is a great story that reminds us that even if you do everything just right, uh, sometimes the results aren't going to be what you expected, and then that's okay. You need to be kind with yourself. Because we don't know fully what God's ultimate goal was mm -hmm. in those conversations either, right? We don't know if we're at the beginning planting a seed mm -hmm. that's going to sprout later. We don't know if we are just one part of their journey mm -hmm. that that God is leading them. We have no idea, but what we do know is that we can be faithful to, to that journey by following this pattern that yeah. Paul sets out for us. Yeah, back to this idea of having trust that God is working in the world, sometimes in spite of us. Joey, pray for us as we conclude. Our good and gracious God, we want to thank you so much for being a God who seeks to understand us. I mean, you're the God who knows everything, and yet you came and put on human flesh. You became human, fully divine, fully human in this world, um, not only that you can save it, but also to make a connection with us in ways that we we would not be able to mm. if you had not mm. condescended to become like us. Mm. And so we ask that you help us to be incarnational in our approach to each other as well is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So one thing we know is true, and that is that we'll see you next week, Sabbath, 1030. Have a wonderful week and a very, very happy holiday season. Mm -hmm.